Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national and global levels. Welcome to episode 26 of Let's Talk Social Work. My name is Andy McClanahan and today my guests and I will discuss the implications of the UK government's autumn budget and spending review. I'm very pleased that joining me are Alex Cunningham, MP, Shadow Justice Minister for Courts and Sentencing, and Baswa's UK Public and Political Affairs Lead, Kerry Prince. Welcome, Alex. Welcome, Kerry. How are you both feeling? Well, very good. Yes, good, thanks. Nice to be here again. Great. Thank you, Kerry. Kerry, where are you right now? I'm in uh, West London. And Alex, you're in the House of Commons, is that right? I'm in the Portcullis House across the road from the House of Commons. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. Well, listen, Alex, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. This is your first time with us. Kerry, this is your appearance number five, I believe. Oh, that many. It is, it is. It's been a little while. Last time you were on was back in May when we discussed the outcome of the Scottish Parliament, Welsh Welsh Senate and English local government elections. So it's been a little while. Um, But welcome back for what is actually our first year, one year anniversary. This is our 26th episode and one year anniversary. So it feels somewhat momentous. Um, we're recording today. Today is the, the 3rd of November, Wednesday, the 3rd of November. And a week ago today, the Chancellor of the Exchequer announced the government's autumn budget and spending review. Um, now, when that announcement was made, the government stated that taxpayers' money will be spent where it makes the most difference to people's daily lives, creating high-wage and high-skilled jobs, reducing NHS waiting lists, putting more police on the streets, upgrading roads and railways and building new homes, hospitals and schools. But I want to talk about what the budget and spending review mean for social workers. So what are the impacts on social work services and how will people who use social work services be affected? So today I'm going to be asking questions about the government's decisions concerning universal credit and the living wage, specifically what this will mean for households and the likely impacts in terms of rates of poverty. I want to ask about grant funding for local authorities and whether it's going to be enough in light of demand on social work services. I want to talk about funding for youth services, early intervention to tackle youth offending, and finally, what the budget and spending review mean for social housing provision. So Alex, Kerry, that's a lot to get through. I hope you're both ready. Ready. Fire away. Yes, yes. Bring it on. Wonderful, wonderful. So just to set a little bit of context so everyone understands, Kerry, Alex, you understand, just so the listeners are clear. The budget and the spending review were both announced last Wednesday. Now, the budget outlines the government's planned spending for the coming 12 months, whereas the spending review sets departmental budgets for the next three years. So that's up to 2024-2025. Now, the government has explained that every department's overall spending will increase in real terms as a result of the spending review, and that this represents the largest real terms increase in overall departmental spending for any parliament this century. Now, Kerry, Alex, I believe that's been met with a bit of cynicism. Well, rightly so, but it's very important that uh, we set this in context. Uh, You know, any spending commitment of the government made is against the backlog of 11 years of austerity and cuts. And uh, you mentioned local authority spending, which, of course, feeds into social work spending earlier. We've seen the budget in my own local authority uh, come down by something like 52% in 11 years. And uh, a few extra comes from the government this year, albeit welcome 
system won't actually go anywhere near, you know, restoring services uh, to the level that we require them in Stockton. You know, we're having to scrape the barrel to make sure that uh, we deliver what is needed. Uh, never mind try and give uh, social workers the pay rise that they deserve. Thank you, Alex. Kerry, would you be of the same mind? I would. Uh, it's very easy for it to be the um, biggest um, increase in spending um, when, as Alex said, on the backdrop of, of the last 11 years when we had Conservative government proudly declaring austerity measures and then we had uh, Prime Minister say that austerity was over when it wasn't over. Um, and now post-pandemic, when we have to funnel money into into services to prevent them from collapsing altogether. Um, I don't think it's a massive accomplishment to um, have the biggest increase in spending. Um, I think it's actually the bare minimum. Right. So I want to move on later to talk about uh, funding for local authorities and funding for services. But to start, I suppose the big headline announcement from the budget concerned universal credit and the national living wage. So just to explain that, um, government argues that to ensure that work always pays, their words, not mine, it's increasing the national living wage to £9.50 an hour from April 2022. And it's reducing the taper rate in universal credit from 63% to 55%, as well as increasing the work allowances in universal credit by £500 per year. Now, government claims that this represents an effective tax cut for low-income working households that are in receipt of universal credit. Alex, how well does the government's claim stand up to scrutiny? Well, it doesn't stand up to scrutiny at all, does it? Um, you know, we've recognised that, uh, you know, families across the country had that additional £20 in their pockets. That was £20 in cash. Um, and the, the offer that the government are now coming, or at least the plan the government now has, will put a matter of extra pence into their pockets rather than pounds. So it's not credible at all. But the most important thing for me is, though, this is for working people. Universal credit is largely received by people in work and the fact that uh, you know they're going to be a few bob better off is it's good but that few bob doesn't go very very far when you consider that inflation in the last month was 3.1 percent and that covers a huge basket of goods but if you actually look at the supermarket uh, inflation rate that is even higher so they will in fact be be worse off and that's assuming that they don't have to pay some of these extra taxes uh, that the uh, the chancellor put on them and uh, quietly hid uh, during uh, last wednesday's uh, speeches tell us a bit more about those the hidden taxes? Well, uh, it's, it's straightforward. We got the uh, the national insurance one, which the uh, the government announced some time ago, an extra one and a half percent. You could have put one and a half pence on income tax, I suppose, but they chose to use national insurance because uh, that doesn't sound like a sound like a tax. But then you've got to look at some of the changes that they've made in VAT. We would like to have seen, as the Labour Party, see VAT disappear on uh, on energy bills, and that would have uh, made a real difference, uh, you know, to people uh, people's spending power. But that wasn't to be. The government, uh, you know, are determined uh, to go this particular route, and at the same time, giving huge tax cuts uh, to people in the banking industry. Thank you, Alex. And we'll be making an episode of the podcast in about a month's time, looking at the cost of living crisis. So that's going to be looking at those issues, particularly looking at fuel costs and energy costs. Um, Kerry, Alex was uh, just coming on from Alex's point there. I was reading the Resolution Foundation's review and analysis of the budget and spending review, and they found that, for example, 
I think it was three quarters of families in universal credit will lose more from the £20 a week cut than they're going to gain from the budget changes. And the poorest fifth of households will be on average £280 a year worse off overall. Now, we've worked also with colleagues in the Child Poverty Action Group on uh, podcasts in the past. And in their analysis, they stated that there was nothing in the budget for those who can't work, for carers, for those with young children and for people who are sick or disabled. You know, they're going to face the same cost pressures um, as other households. And we've already touched than that, but they're not going to get any support to mitigate the universal credit cut. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right. What this budget doesn't recognise is the people who, who can't work, uh, they're disabled or they have uh, full-time caring responsibilities, the people that this government conveniently chooses to ignore, the people that social workers um, will see in their, in their daily, daily caseloads. Um, and so I absolutely agree with, with everything Alex said. Um, it's easy for the government to get up and say, well, they're going to make work pay, but completely ignoring the people who can't work and ignoring those who are on legacy benefits and therefore don't benefit from the taper rate at all. This, this, um, the change in the taper rate is good, but it's not good enough. It's certainly not a replacement for the £20 cuts universal credit. It doesn't do anything to, um, to help people actually the most in need at all. And when you talk about legacy benefits, that would be child tax credit, for example. Would that be right? Yeah, and, and, and ESA, you know, the, the various other disability um, or benefits uh, targeted people with disabilities. The government are keen to move everybody to universal credit. But, uh, you know, the, there are still these legacy benefits which do not uh, keep pace with some of the other increases that we've seen in benefits. OK, and we know that poverty is a huge problem all across the UK. Now, one of the interesting things about the budget and the spending review that we should mention is a lot of the announcements in the budget and spending review uh, apply directly to England only, whereas universal credit and uh, living wages, those will apply UK wide. But when we're talking about issues of poverty, those are UK wide issues. And and I just want to say at this point that we had hoped to have been joined by um, a really fantastic social work colleague who was going to talk about the impacts and implications of poverty from a grassroots perspective, a service level perspective. But unfortunately, because of a very, very significant uh, crisis situation, they can't, they can't join us today. But I do want to talk about poverty. Um, Alex, you will see constituents at your constituency level um, in your surgeries dealing with the effects of poverty in their lives. Can you tell us a little bit about what you see in, in terms of your caseloads? Yeah, yes, certainly. But I'll tell you about walking down my uh, my high street. And uh, I make a habit on a Friday to walk from one end of the high street to the other and through the shopping centres uh, to look at people, talk to people and give them a chance to, to say hello if they want. And what I see are young people in old tatty clothes. I see uh, mothers pushing pushchairs uh you know, moving between the various different discount stores so that they can save a few pence here and a few pence there in order to try and make their income stretch as far as it possibly can. But, you know, that's just the, that's the physical things that I see. But I also know the statistics behind that are absolutely horrendous. The number of children in, uh, in poverty has expanded, you know, Terribly over the last uh, over the last eleven years, and yet uh, you know the government uh, continues to say that uh, you know they're putting more money into people's pockets. If they were putting more money into people's pockets, we wouldn't see what I'm seeing in my high street, and social workers wouldn't be finding the stresses that they have in trying to deal with some of these families who you know they want to do the best for their children, but feel as if they're failing because they simply don't have uh, sufficient income in order to feed them and clothe them properly. 
And Kerry, just on the back of the announcement of the budget and the spending review, you published a blog on Baz's website, and I'll include a link in the show notes for people to read that because it's really, really helpful and insightful. But in the blog, um, you explained that you considered the changes to the duties on alcohol um, as part of the budget announcement. You, you suggested that those were a distraction from focusing on more significant matters of economic and social policy, such as the issues that Alex has just been touching on, poverty. Now, I'm going to ask you the question, do you consider that to be a deliberate distraction or was it simply a reflection of the government's priorities? I would be the first to admit that I'm a cynic. Um, so I would say it absolutely was a distraction. Um, the chance to spend as much time talking about the cost of alcohol than you did about the cost of living. Um, and I think that's that says a lot about not just priorities, but what the government wanted this focus to be on. This budget was not good news. Um, it's, it's a budget... Um, targeted at a particular demographic of voter because this is what this comes down to it's politics um and the chancellor will be aware that there's local elections um across the country in may um and he wants um conservative councils to to retain control of course um so yes i would say the the changes on alcohol duty is absolutely a distraction did that need to have the grandstanding that it did at the budget during that speech or could the chancellor spend much more time reflecting on the issues that people actually face, not whether they're going to get a few pence off a pint. Yeah, I mean, on that, I mean, you have champagne drinking, uh, uh, people taking flights uh, within the UK, uh, totally contrary to all the advice about using trains and other forms of public transport. We've got COP26 going on in Glasgow at the moment. And, and what we're talking about is encouraging people onto aeroplanes, which is bad for bad for the environment. But it is a distraction. It goes back to the that central point. It is a distraction. And it's an easy headline because people understand uh, you know, those things much more easily than they do the, the, the complexities of uh, universal, universal credit tapering systems. You know, they understand those things. So it's an easy headline for the, for the, uh, for the government. Alex, I'll just put it back to you, though. In terms of all the, the discourse around the red wall seats, the seats that Labour lost in the north of England, they're essentially allowing the Conservative government into power. Now, those aren't affluent areas. Those are seats that Labour would seek to be um, gaining back from the Tories and seats that the Tories are keen to keep control of. You know, so with that in mind, did the government not consider the the issues of of um, facing people in those in those constituencies? Well, they did, and I mean, the government came up with this uh, this levelling up fund, and uh, you know, in a very partisan way, they've uh, allocated funding to different different areas. So, a good example is is my own uh, my own constituency, the one next door. The one next door is Tory. Uh, it's far more affluent, and uh, the very pretty area of Yarm and Eaglescliff uh, got levelling up funding, and yet the industrial town of Billingham didn't. And so, you know, they are very uh, partisan in the way that they allocate things. And uh, I would say uh, it's to the point of dishonest about where, where need is. And so, you know, they target funds where there are Tory MPs. And that's sometimes quite difficult to combat because people say, well, maybe I should vote Tory because uh, we get the money. But of course, we believe in uh, social justice. We believe that, uh, you know, uh, provision should be based on needs, uh, not on uh, where somebody happens to have, uh, you know, a political uh, a political seat. Across Teesside, I mean, we, we lost a, a, number of, uh, a number of people. Um, but of course, that was 
was uh, on the back of uh, the Brexit thing. And uh, so it's very, very difficult, really, to understand how, you know, the real effect of that. Uh, was Brexit a major factor that cost us votes? It certainly would cost me votes. And uh, I know that uh, had it not been for uh, for UKIP also standing in my constituency in 2019, we, w- we wouldn't have been having this conversation today. That would be the Brexit party, Alex, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. If we move on to talk about uh, social care funding uh, and and the the grant uh, um, spending for a local authority, so the government has stated that local government will be given four point eight billion of new grant funding for social care over the next three years, and the government has also indicated that it expects local authorities will have to increase council tax to meet the demand and services. So, in terms of the impacts uh, and of of the pandemic, for example, even on social services, and um, we know that demand is growing. We know that. For example, I know in, in, in Northern Ireland, the numbers of young people uh, being taken into care has risen throughout the pandemic. And I presume the situation is, is similar elsewhere in the UK. But if we know that demand is growing, is, is the grant funding that's being made available to local authorities going to cover what's what's needed in terms of both adult and children's social care? Well, I don't believe so. Um, I, I know the local authorities will cope within the, uh, the envelope that they have, but it's a case of what quality they can actually deliver for all those services. But I wanted to think about the uh, the fact that uh, you talked about um, you know the the increase in council tax. That's another of the hidden taxes that uh, you know social workers and the rest of us uh, have to pay. And we've seen a two percent increase in each of three years in my area uh, for uh, you know in order to help fund social care. And that has improved things immeasurably. But the bottom line is, you know, it's local people who are having to pay for these services when, you know, a lot of us would argue that perhaps, the, you know, the costs of those uh, services should be borne by those with the broader shoulders uh, and, uh, you know, the taxation system should be different and the social care should be funded in a very different way. Thanks, Alex. I mean, I was reading statements from various different local government figures following the grant funding announcement. Um, and I have a quote here from uh, Councillor Sam Chapman-Allen. Councillor Chapman-Allen is chair of the District Council's network. I'm just going to read his quote uh, word for word. The spending review does not deliver the firm financial foundation. District councils need to continue delivering essential frontline services and supporting local economies to grow. We cannot see how the $4.8 billion new grant funding announced by the Chancellor will come close to addressing the financial pressures district councils and the rest of local government or under. Now, I was interested interested to see that Councillor Chapman Allen is a member of the Conservative Party. Yeah, well, what he should be doing, he should be down here in Downing Street in Westminster, braying on the door at number 10 and saying, you know, we're Conservatives, we can't deliver the services either. So for heaven's sake, get your finger out, get us some cash and make sure that, uh, you know, we can deliver. Because if we don't start delivering, we're going to lose our seats and Labour will move in. But maybe that's what we should do, eh? <laughs> yeah, you're giving electoral advice to the Conservatives. Um, Alex, this is, this is interesting. So, yes, yeah, so the, the question I was basically was going to put to you, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I find it interesting, at least from my point of view, that the, the Chancellor's own party are finding fault with the, the budget allocation for local authorities. Kerry, did you want to add anything there? What I find quite interesting about putting the burden of raising the funds needed for social care, which is doesn't even um, doesn't even touch the sides, but uh, the Chancellor is putting that responsibility on local authorities so that they can shirk the blame, um, even though it, the reason that the council tax has to go up is because central government is failing to fund it. And this means social. Uh, this means that local authorities will provide what they have to provide, the statutory services, but prevention and additional services, innovation, will all be 
prevented from happening, um, which will have a longer term impact on, on statutory services that will keep going up. We don't keep people um, in their own homes living healthier lives as well as longer ones. Then this will all pile up and the situation will get even worse. Um, but it doesn't seem that this government has recognised um, what a false economy social care is and that early intervention will save money in the long run. But uh, maybe, maybe that Alex has given his advice to the Conservatives, and that's why. <laughs> so I think I think it's worth I think it's worth making making the point as well about you know the the, the wider issue of funding uh, and you know this increase in taxation, the increase in national insurance, which the government sold as a, an, a tax increase or an increase in uh, you know the, their tax take in order to fund health and social care. And yet, you know, the, the statement from the Chancellor talked about uh, the social care levy actually being uh, used to clear the waiting backlog in hospitals, and then it will revert to social care in 2025. So they say with one, one uh, breath, we're, we're going to raise extra cash from you in order to fund social care. And then they turn around and say, but actually we're not. We're putting that money into the health service and social care, again, is the bridesmaid, not the bride. And in relation just to the allocation of that funding, um, $4.8 billion for social care. But as I understand, $3.6 billion of that is allocated for adult social care. So children's services are going to benefit, but they're going to benefit from the smaller amount of that, that funding. And we know there is huge demand facing children's services. Kerry, just coming back to the point around council tax, I think it was la- it was back. It was either when we did the episode on the budget in March or perhaps a year ago, um, when we did an episode on the, the previous spending review. We talked about the issues uh, related between poverty and demand for social work services, and you know the the situation being where you have a more deprived area, a more deprived local authority area, you will have more um, demand on social work services, but you're raising the tax from a, a, a less wealthy tax base as well. So they would, you know, you could argue that there's an injustice in that as well. The people that need the money the most are actually paying for the services um, that, that that vulnerable people need. Uh, that's absolutely correct. If you've got an area um, of high deprivation, many people may not be able to to work or may not be in work um, and may receive um, council tax discounts, um, and which will then prevent the council being able to raise the funding it needs to pay for the services to support the people who, who for whatever reason, cannot contribute. Uh, and this is where the central government has to step up. Central government can spend in ways that local authorities can't. And instead, the government will shirk responsibility and blame local authorities, um, which I believe is a political move. Thank you, Kerry. I want to move on to talk about youth services now. Now, government pledged in, in the spending review £560 million over three years for funding youth services in England. When you look into those figures, however, much of that money, I think it's about £500 million, was actually pledged back in 2019, but was unallocated. Um if you look into it further, the National Youth Agency has estimated that £1 billion less is being spent on youth services annually than a decade ago. So we have a huge dearth in investment there in youth services. You know, Alex Kerry, I was, the question I was going to ask was, do you feel the government is sufficiently focused on investing in youth services? But I think I've probably already answered my question. Why do you think the government doesn't prioritise investing in youth services as it, as it, as it could or should? 
Well, I wish I could answer that question. I honestly do, because, you know, we talk about increase in crime, increase in violent crime amongst young people. And we talk about the need for diversionary activity, and yet there's no money there. And Kerry referred earlier that, uh, you know, if you invest uh, in preventative services, uh, you know, you get the payback further down the line. So I can't quite understand why the government won't uh, won't invest in that. But there's other issues as well. I mean, we got the announcement uh, about, uh, you know, the money going into uh, to children's centres for example. And, uh, you know, it's actually the recreation of the, the labour policies of the uh, of the noughties when we uh, were creating all the Sure Start centres around the country. And I just see this provision as a Sure Start on the cheap or even Sure Start on the very cheap, where they're trying to uh, give the impression that they're delivering services when uh, they don't really have the capacity uh, to do it. Uh, same with uh, social care, uh, sorry, um, child care. And your social workers will know how important that is, you know, to some of our more vulnerable families. And yet, you know, the government have failed to, to deliver on the 2006 legislation, never mind, uh, you know, recent, recent legislation, sorry, 2016 legislation, uh, never mind, uh, you know, the recent legislation they've made as well. Yeah, and just coming back to the, what you've described as sure start on the cheap, there was a, yeah, it was a five hundred million pound package to support parents and children. And that's going to fund the rollout of family hum, hubs. I think there was two hundred million of that money is going to be used to support three hundred thousand families who face complex issues that could lead to family breakdown. So I suppose that is an example of early intervention. Um, whether or not it's enough, you know, Alex, you've, you've challenged that um, in your previous answer. I'd, I'd mentioned uh, in relation to the youth services, I mentioned uh, the National Youth Agency saying that there's a billion pounds less being spent a year on youth services. But um, recent research that they, they they published, I think it was actually just started this week, it found that children in affluent areas of England are twice as likely to have access to youth clubs and other out-of-school activities um, as those in poor areas. So, you know, again, you have a lack of provision for, for young people in poorer areas, um, arguably where the need is greater. I don't know... If that provision is is charity provision, I don't know if it's churches, but wh- whoever is providing it, the need isn't being met um, in more deprived areas. And Alex, I mean, in terms of your constituency, what does it look like in terms of youth provision where you are? Well, I mean, like everyone else, we've seen uh, we've seen youth services absolutely devastated. Uh, everything tends to be centralised now. So instead of having the uh, the provision out on the big estates uh, where the kids are, you know, are, are bothering local people, they might not be doing anything, but they still bother local people if they're wandering around the streets. So instead of having the provision where they need it, uh, you know, it tends to be centralised and a uh, few youngsters uh, actually uh, head there. I mean, some of the churches, some of the charities, they do a great job. Um, I uh, did some work uh, with Eastern Ravens Trust, which works with uh, with young carers. And, uh, you know, they're very vulnerable young people who, who do get into trouble at school and things, some, sometimes because they haven't turned up, uh, because they care for a parent. Um, and, you know, those sorts of services are absolutely critical, but we shouldn't be leaving all this sort of thing to charity. We should be on the biggest stage we should have provision there and uh, you know it's lamentable what we've seen over the last 11 years but also for the life opportunities for the young people involved you know they're missing out on opportunities to develop skills they're missing out on opportunities to develop experience which stands them in good stead you know in years uh, going forward i mean everything that government talks about aspiration you know young people are losing out on because they don't have the opportunities that they 
previously uh, under previous governments may have had. Yeah, I can say something positive about what some of the government provision. I mean, the National Citizenship Service um, is is a is a great program, and uh, every year I I go along and uh, and meet the young people who are on the program locally. But you're normally talking about maybe a total of forty young people uh, over uh, over a few weeks who get involved in the community and they build their skills and they build their particularly social skills. Some of them don't have the social skills. But, you know, we need year-round provision. Uh, this is great for a fortnight or three weeks, but we need year-round provision for people. And if we don't have that, uh, you know, young people do get into trouble. And, uh, you know, we really should be doing so much more for them. Thank you, Alex. Now, I want to move on to talk about youth offending. And Alex, I mentioned in the introduction, your brief as Shadow Justice Minister, it covers courts and sentencing. So uh, I imagine this next section is going to be of interest to you in particular. The government has pledged £200 million investment over the next three years in what they call prison lever rehabilitation. So some of this money is to go towards early intervention to tackle youth offending. So in terms of uh, your, your, your views on this, Alex, um, is enough money going into to preventing young people becoming involved in the criminal justice system? And if not, how much funding would you prioritise if you're actually making the decision yourself? Well, I think I think it's very difficult to, to understand the, the whole the whole funding envelope that exists. Uh, we keep getting announcements for 100,000 here, 100 million there, and it's very difficult to find out where that money actually goes. What I do know is that we need a tremendous amount of money into prevention work. And we were just talking about, you know, youth clubs and things like that. And that's, that is part of the same package as far as I'm concerned. But there's also, uh, you know, the very professional work that, uh, many social workers are involved in uh, that needs to be done as well and uh, I'm sure that they need more resources but this isn't just about cash this is about people as well social workers are leaving the profession you know hand over fist uh, we've got vacancies across the country uh, for social workers simply because people don't feel appreciated, they're stressed out, their workloads are far greater than they uh, than they should be. Um, so they, they, they're leaving the profession and the number of people available to provide service to young people, even if we had, you know, the, the infinite resources, they simply don't exist. And, uh, you know, and for me, that's where the system is breaking down. We need to have proper systems in place where young people, you know, are coming into the profession and they're learning on the job and being able to move in and deal and deliver some, with some of the services we're talking about, including youth offending services. In terms of the political will and in terms of trying to tackle a problem, if you look up to Scotland, the Scottish government's making uh, big inroads in relation to child poverty and 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 and, and actually making a priority to, to address those issues. I'm, I'm going back a few years, but I think it was in 2016, Joseph Rowntree Foundation published a, a, a large scale study which essentially um, audited the costs of poverty across the UK. And I think it found something like 10% of all public spending went towards addressing the impacts of poverty. Now, that covers healthcare, that covers um, impacts on educational underachievement, that covers impacts in terms of antisocial behaviour and uh, people becoming involved in the criminal justice system. But when you look at what poverty costs in terms of all those areas, you know, it's not hard to make a justification for tackling poverty to save money elsewhere in the system. And that doesn't mean necessarily that there won't be an upfront cost. But what, what I kind of, uh, I just find it hard to understand why governments don't take a focus on saying, this is what poverty is going to cost us. So let's actually invest to address these problems. Have you any idea why that doesn't happen? 
Well, you know, I can't, I can't answer for the Tory government, but uh, it's just a, it's a lack of focus on the things that matter as far as I'm concerned. And I take I take exception to what you say about uh, poverty in Scotland, which has increased uh, in recent years. It hasn't decreased. Um, and, uh, you know, so they, they've got a job to do up there as well. But for me, you know, it, it's, all, it's all this preventative thing. I, we need a, a government that's bold enough to be able to say, look, we're going to have tremendous pain for the next five years and we're going to increase taxation uh, tremendously. And of course, I'm speaking as, a, as a, an individual, not party policy, but we need to be bold enough or somebody needs to be bold enough to invest in the preventative services. And whether that's uh, youth offending services or whether that's health service or whether that's social care, you know, if we put that money up front in, in the shorter term, in the longer term, we'll get the payback. And, uh, you know, any tax increases uh, could, uh, could then be re- reduced. Absolutely. Uh, sorry, just when I was thinking of Scotland, I was thinking of things like the Scottish Child Payment, which was introduced, I think it was earlier this year, and for families with children under six. You know, just saying, you know, where there is political will, changes can be made. And I'm just suggesting that that political will doesn't exist, certainly with the UK government. Well, certainly so. And I suppose the, the best illustration of that was the decision by the Tory MPs to vote to end uh, the £20 uplift in universal credit. And, you know, that came as a tremendous shock, not just to the people who were ordinarily in uh, receipt of uh, universal credit, but people who, because of the pandemic, uh, found themselves unemployed or on lower hours uh, as a direct result of COVID. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden uh, they found out they were £20 a week worse off not actually realising when they got their, you know, their, their payments that, uh, you know, there was that additional money built in. And we, I saw one example, somebody said, but I spend right up to the limit of my income. I have, I don't have any more money. So it is about political will, you know, I have to prepare to spend money. It's political will to lower, you know, duty on flights domestically. It's political will to give, you know, Tax tax cuts to bankers, so you know it could be political will to spend the money in a different way. Absolutely, and just coming back because we, we we did speak about universal credit earlier, but twenty pound a week uplift that's a thousand and forty pounds a year. That is dead easy to understand, but when you talk about the universal taper rate being reduced from sixty three percent to fifty five percent, that is complicated and difficult to understand. So just coming back to the suggestion that the government has made progress and they have made some progress, but it doesn't address the, the extent of the problem which has been created by the removal of that twenty pound um, uplift. So yeah, but it's not just the it's not just the removal of the twenty pounds and the that drop in income for the local people. People who get that money, they spend it locally in the local economy. You know, so in, in on T's side, there's something like three million pounds lost to the local economy, and and that doesn't just uh, that doesn't mean it goes to Asda or Morris's or something like that. It might be the local shop. It helps sustain the local shop because people spend their money locally and so you know this is this isn't just about individuals this is about the economy in, in areas where you know there's high levels of deprivation and and difficulty as well absolutely absolutely um alex i want to uh, really appreciate the time you've given us and i'm aware time's getting tight so we want to move on and talk about uh, the final point which is about social housing now the government has pledged to create up to 180,000 affordable homes through investment of 11.5 billion pounds in the Affordable Homes Programme. And they say that that is in an effort to turn generation rent into generation buy. Now, I was looking at uh, the charity Shelter. Shelter have said um, that to meet demand for social social housing in England alone, 3.1 million new social homes are going to be needed over the next 20 years. That's a staggering uh, figure. 
As far as I can see, however, when I read the spending review, the only mention of social housing in the spending review is in relation to the social housing de decarbonisation fund, you know, about making houses more energy efficient. Now, that's important. I'm not minimising that, but that's not building new houses where new houses are needed. So, you know, what are the impacts um, of the government's failure to invest in truly affordable homes? When you look at your own constituency, what are the impacts when um, social housing isn't readily available to people who need it? Yeah, well, I mean, we've had a growing uh, private sector uh, rental market, uh, you know, as it, as it has been across the country. So we've seen more and more people buying up what were former uh, social housing uh, and, uh, and then letting them letting them privately. So we've seen a lot of that. But we're not we're seeing some build, but we're not seeing very much at all. We are seeing... Uh, some um, you know so-called affordable homes, but an affordable home in my constituency uh, in Stockton might be one hundred and thirty thousand pounds. An affordable home a mile down the road from uh, from, from where Kerry's speaking to us uh, today might be. £320,000, it might even be more, you know, for, for, a, for a family home. And so, you know, the government needs to address, you know, different things in different areas. But the bottom line is that, you know, they're looking to the buy market rather than the social market, the social housing market. And, and we really do need to adjust, uh, address that. They're allowing housing associations more borrowing powers, and that is positive, and that will result in more social housing. But the, the numbers that you described, you know, three point whatever million over the next 10 years. 20 years. It's, just, it's almost impossible. Kerry, you were looking to come in there? Yes. Well, I think housing is such a significant part of a person's expenditure. Um, so, um, I'm, you know, I will disclose that that my rent, um, I, I go halves in on a, a two-bedroom flat on Zone 6 of London, which is the outskirts. Um, and between us, it's, it's over £1,200 a month, which is... Um, absurd um for people who are on minimum wage uh, the government will uh, call it the national living wage but that's only for um uh for those who are over 25 but if you're under 25 um you get paid a lot less yet you have the same housing costs so I, I don't really know who the government think they're trying to appeal to are they trying to appeal to people like me who are approaching 30 very quickly um, and wants to buy a house and will, ne not, will not be able to do that in the city. So I'll move. I take my skills with me. Um, we'll, but where are the jobs up in a different part of the country? So I suppose what I'm trying to say is I don't really understand where the government are coming from um, when they fail to tackle the housing crisis. Is it that politically, is it that they are interested in tackling the problems of the people that vote for them? And normally, people who vote Conservative are more likely to be wealthy and older. Um, and the older you are, the more likely you are to own your own house. Um, and that, that, that's changing. Um, I'm sure Alex can talk to um, the fact that we're going to have a generation of um, pensioners who do not own their own home, who will not be earning, who won't be able to afford private rents on, on their measly incomes and estate pension if it still exists. Um, it's, a cri it's a crisis, and, but the people who are in charge don't see it as a crisis because it doesn't affect them. Um, yet people are being put up in temporary accommodation for years at a time. It's not temporary. Um, and people are just living in, in uncertain circumstances um, on uncertain wages for an unknown amount of time. Um, which leads then to the mental health crisis that we have. And yet, what did the what did the Chancellor not mention at all during his budget? Mental health. Yeah, but it's also a tragedy, is it not, 
that a professional, a young professional woman or two young professional women are spending £1,200 uh, a month on rent plus all the other costs associated with their home, when £1,200 a month could support a mortgage of about £180,000. Uh, but they can't get the deposit to buy to, to get the house, but you can't buy a house in some parts of the country for £180,000. So it's a bit of a vicious circle. But what I say to everybody is, come north, Good housing, higher standard of living, more disposable income. That's if you're making money. But if you're amongst the people who are unemployed or disabled, you know, it's still very, very tough out there. I would say come come Northwest. And I mean, Northwest in terms of the, the British Isles. Come to Belfast. Um, I look, I, I, it's incumbent on me to ask the well. I mean, uh, provision of social housing, social housing development, social housing development has been in steep decline since the Thatcher government. Now that covers the major government, it covers the Blair government, it covers the Brown government, and then it covers the coalitions after that. I mean, Labour Labour's record isn't fantastic in relation to social housing building over the last, you know, in in, in recent history. Were you to find yourselves in power, what would change? Well, I mean, first and foremost, I mean, the last the last Labour government, uh, the Blair government, uh, invested its money in a very, very different way because it, uh, you know, it had the decent homes uh, standard, which they established. And, uh, you know, billions of pounds was actually invested in in bringing housing stock uh, up to uh, up to a decent standard. And that's what it was called. And so for me, uh, you know, maybe we should have uh, been a bit more expansive in terms of uh, building more houses. But, but we recognise that not only do we need to build more houses, but they need to be energy efficient. Um, and, you know, they need to be able to deliver the sort of accommodation people want. I see bought new houses now. Uh, I've been uh, touring with family, looking at new houses, and they're little boxes in comparison to, uh, you know, what was built many, many years ago. But uh, perhaps that's where we need to be. That's, you know, if we can maximise the number of properties by making them smaller, that's got to be a good thing. But, uh, you know, Labour's pledged to, to build many, many more social houses next time round. Alex, Kerry, thanks so much for joining me for this conversation. It's been really, really helpful. Um, I've really appreciated your insights. Uh, Andy, can I can I just say something else? Because it's not often I get the chance to speak directly to, to social workers who are out there. Please do. Um, you know, I would hate this to sound trite in any way whatsoever, but, you know, I for one and many, many people around this place down here do appreciate, you know, what social workers uh, do for our, do for our country, do for our people. And uh, I know because I've been, I've done shifts with social workers, I've spent the night out with social workers I've, I've been in some of the very difficult situations that they face and you know i know that they, they're having a tough time and uh, although i don't longer chair the uh, the all party parliamentary group on social work i'll still be batting for them thank you alex thank you very much alex thanks for your time kerry thanks for joining us thanks for having us thank you 